Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Hi, everyone. Today's episode is an interview with Mark Schneider, Director of the Institute of Education Sciences. We had some connection issues on the day of recording, so at times the audio quality is not the best. However, we still think this information is really important and that you'll still enjoy the interview. Hi, I am Dr. Althea Kaminsky here for The Learning Scientist, and I am really excited about our guest today. I am here talking with Dr. Mark Schneider, the director of IES. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I was wondering if you could first give us um, an overview of what what is uh, IES and what it does, because most of our listeners are... Um, our educators, teachers, we have a lot of listeners in the UK and elsewhere, as well as the US. So I thought just an overview of what your organization does would be really helpful to start off with. Okay, so IES is the Institute of Education Sciences. It was created in 2002. So we just celebrated the end of our 20th year in existence. Um, We've had several studies, reports to help us understand and plot out the next 20 years. Actually, I think saying that we're going to plan for the next 20 years is really just hubris. We, uh, my expectations is we can plan for five years or eight years or at the utmost 10, you know, we'd be, we, we were ahead of the game, uh, but we did complete 20 years. So we, so the IS is, is consisted of four centers, the National Center for Education Research, the National Center for Special Education Research, which is focused on, as the, as the name implies, the needs of, of special education students. Uh, the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance. Usually it gets abbreviated as NCEE, the National Center for Education Evaluation, and the regional assistance part is sort of disappears uh, because all the centers have four letters in them. And then the National Center for uh, education statistics. Um, so those are the four centers. The um, so I think most of those names are self-explanatory. The other thing that if your uh, readership includes teachers, the one thing that they probably are most familiar with would be the uh, NAEP, the National Assessment of Education Progress, which is we we administer that. Um, that's a math and reading every two years in fourth and eighth grade, in twelfth grade every four years, but we also do assessments on variable schedules in science, in uh, writing, civics, geography. Uh, but the, the bread and butter of NAEP, the national assessment, is the requirement that um, we do fourth and eighth grade every two years, and again, twelfth uh, grade in um, every four years. The other thing that your readership may know are the RELs, the Regional Education Laboratories. Uh, we run those, um, and that there are 10 of them. They are designed to assist state and local education agencies address contemporary problems. So they are, um, it's an important part of our organization, and they deal intimately with the, as I said, states and local education agencies and try to find solutions to pressing problems. The other, the other thing that I, I know many teachers know about, and unfortunately many teachers had terrible experiences with because they may have been in graduate school 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 10 years ago, uh, we run ERIC, which is a library 
so and and I, I admit I admit that when many of your teachers, current teachers, were in graduate school, Eric was a mess. It was awful, uh, and so many teachers who know Eric just like roll their eyes. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that um, it was almost impossible to find anything in Eric. But we, you know, it, it is now much more searchable and much more uh, usable. So if any of your teachers, when I say Eric, they roll their eyes and they say, oh, my God, if that's the product that you're talking about, you know, I'm not listening to the rest of this podcast. Oh, no. um, actually, it's gotten it's gotten much, much better. And we're working on, on uh, modernizing, modernizing it even further to make it even better. Great. Very cool. So one of the things I'm really excited to talk to you about is um, just, I mean, your perspective on what are some of the challenges to conducting education research. So here at Learning Scientists, we are cognitive psychologists. We do research on learning and memory. And our um, our sort of goal is to make the research on learning and memory from cognitive psychology more accessible to a broader audience, anybody interested in education. Um, and I get so I get lots of questions about education research just sort of writ large. Um, and it's so I'm, I'm used to viewing this question from a really different perspective, but I was curious to hear your thoughts on just what do you think some of the challenges are to doing research just in general in education? Well, oh my God, we could, how much time do we have? <laughs> so I, I want to actually comment, respond to the critical point that is embedded in your, in your comment. And that is making this stuff accessible and usable. So most of the research that we, we fund is done by university researchers or researchers in large um, research shops like the American Institutes for Research, uh, RTI, SRI, etc. So I, I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to insult too many people because I, I will insult some number of people by this, but the fact of the matter is that we have relied on researchers to do two things. And mo again, most academic, most of our academics. One is to identify the projects, and you know, and, and, and look, I mean, I was an academic almost my entire life, and um, and the the thing that drives you, you know, your your desire to make your your thoughts and your insights known, is really the fundamental driver of uh, of, of the academy and of, of research. But here's the problem. For most academics, me included, all those years I was an academic, right? You conduct research, your goal is to publish it in a journal, get some lines on your Vita, then you start using Google Scholar, and then you wonder why nobody's citing it. And like, oh my God, I spent all that time and the three people read it, and I already told the three people that read it, you know, like, they already know what's on it because they're my friends, right? So, so this is, I mean, no insult, this is the way academia is, is structured, right? And, and, the, the, and, and if you don't publish, you don't get promoted, you don't get tenured, and then you don't get more grant money. So it, it's, a, it's a vicious cycle. But the fact of the matter is, IES is an applied science agency. Our goal is to change facts on the ground. Our goal is to improve learning outcomes. Our goal is to, is to affect and better the experience of, of learners from early childhood all the way up through post-secondary and into adult education. So to change the facts on the ground, right, to improve learner outcomes is not, it requires a different set of skills than conducting world-class research and publishing it in, you know, an academic journal. 
And one of the things that we're struggling with is how to incentivize our researchers. And again, we're a very large investor in, in research um, to try to incentivize researchers to either think more carefully about scaling up and dissemination um, and, and the kinds of things that actually get the, the information into the real world, right? Or the, the more normal way that we are encouraging this kind of work is to support teams of researchers, right? So the, you know, so the image of a lone academic sitting, you know, surrounded by papers, you know, and, and you know, I was never like this, but many of my colleagues were, you know, you, you will enter somebody's office and you have to negotiate eight foot tall piles of papers and books and things like that. Right. Oh, it, it's terrifying. Yes. It's, it's, it's terrifying. And, and, you, and you're thinking like if one of these piles falls over on you, right, you'll be dead. We won't even know that you're dead and we'll never be able to get into your office. We'll never see you again. So, so we're, I mean, our model is, you know, our model is to simplify, to create teams of researchers that can combine the skills that are needed to do world-class research, to think about commercialization, to think about scaling up, to think about replication, all the kinds of things that are really important, but that, quite frankly, an individual researcher, very few individual researchers have that skill set. What they really, what they've been trained to do is to write articles for publication. Right. So the audience for them is, you know, the, the two or three reviewers that are going to read their paper and the editor. Right. And that and, 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 and that's their talk target. And, you know, if you're good at it, you know exactly who's going to read your papers before you submit them or you have a pretty good idea of the five people who might be chosen. And, and you know, so we're just trying to incentivize a different thought process about how to make the work more accessible. The other thing is, I was, you know, I was an academic. I know how this works, right? My goal was to, you know, to write in, quite frankly, in, I'm going to use the word jargon, but, you know, the language of, yes. of research, right? Well, I mean, it's inaccessible mm-hmm. for, for a normal person, right? I mean, the, the words are complicated. They, I mean, they, oftentimes you need these words, right? Because they signify a lot. Other times you just use those words because you're lazy, because you're sloppy, because it's the current, you know, buzzwords you want to you want to put them in, in in the paper, right? There's no payoff. There's no payoff for simple direct English. Well, we're trying to we've been trying to change this for a long time. Yeah, that's um one of our primary goals at, at Learning Scientists is that I we read through all of the academic jargon and then try to boil it down into you know, what, what's the main takeaway point here? What should you as a teacher, as a student, as a parent of a student, what is, what do you really need to take away from from this? Um, and you said a, a few things that I want to comment on, because this is, uh, this is great. You're, you're saying all of the things that, that we talk about all the time, especially this need for, um, for collaboration and communication, right? That I, as a cognitive psychologist, like you said, I'm incentivized to approach research in a, a specific kind of way. Um, and I really only have a limited skill set to do that, right? That when we're looking at what works in something as complicated as education, you need to have teams of people who are collaborating together and working together. And it's it's really difficult to have any one person who has all of the skills that they need 
in order to make impactful research that is easy to disseminate, to apply, right? That you really do need teams of people working together. So, but, but, but out there, you know, there's a trade-off in this. And, and mm-hmm. I, I know which side of the trade-off I come down on. I, I think it's clear. So here's the trade-off. To assemble the teams, right, so that we could do the, the, the quality research and then do the dissemination and then do the scaling and then do the commercialization, right? That means you need a larger team. And one of the, one of the kinds of uh, partnership plans that we're working on would be researchers, state education or local education officials, and, and uh, ed tech firms. We, we're we're going to experiment with, new, with this new kind of partnership. Uh, arrangement. But here's the problem. The more people you get on the team, right? So the other thing which we didn't talk about, but we we also require cost analysis, right? So it doesn't do any good to have the, the most, you know, the most beautiful intervention that is guaranteed to work and cost $100,000 per student. Yes. It just doesn't work, right? So we're looking, you know, so you have to, in all the work we support, you have to do cost analysis which means a whole other skill set that most academic researchers, education academic researchers, did not have. So we've been doing a lot of support for that, and then you have to bring people in to do that. But again, every one of these skill sets that are, we know is required to assemble a team that could get us you know, beyond just the laboratory adds money. Okay, so we have a fixed budget. So if we increase the grants that we make, to encompass teams, encompass, you know, uh, cost analysis, in, encompass dissemination experts, et cetera. Well, those grants get more expensive. And with a fixed budget, what does that mean? We could get fewer grants. And I mean, I think that's a fair trade-off, right? I mean, we, we don't stop in, in terms of trying to get more money. But the fact of the matter is the things that we're asking and the reason we're asking them is because they're essential to change facts on the ground, to improve education outcomes, as we ask for more and more of these things to actually, quite frankly, reflect the reality of education research and education, it ultimately means we can um, only give, we can give uh, fewer grants. I I think that's a trade-off that's valuable. I think it's a trade-off that's worthwhile. Right, because otherwise, what we're doing is we're supporting individual researchers or small groups, you know, two people or whatever. And the only thing that happens to that work is it, it shows up in, a, in an academic journal. And you know, we, we don't know if this is replicable. We don't know if it's scalable. We don't know if anything. We don't know how to get in front of your readership. We don't know how to get in front of teachers. Nothing. So to me, this is like we need to put more money in into larger teams that. Take us from the beginning all the way through dissemination and scaling and commercialization and and, and deployed in more and more uh, classrooms. One uh one of the questions that I get asked frequently, both in my role as a member of the learning scientist and as just a regular old professor, is you know I, we talk about all of these things that improve learning and memory. We know this from research, and here are best practices. And a super common question is, well. Why aren't we doing this in the school? Why aren't we doing this in the classroom? And I have my own answer to it, which is some version of what you just said, which is that it's it's more complicated than that. It's um, you you right, there's a big difference between something that works in 
a laboratory somewhere and with you know one population of people and and how it would actually look in real classrooms how it would scale up how we would you know implement that but i was just wondering if you could speak to what are some of these common common challenges of adopting best practices in education or implementing some of these things that we have a pretty good idea from the research that that should work but what are maybe some of the barriers to getting that into the hands of the people who need it or being able to actually implement it? Uh, you know, I wish I had an easy answer to that because it's a, it's a giant puzzle. So I'm, I'm going to go to one of my, uh, what, what, my bet noir. Okay. So reading. So we, you know, the reading wars have been going on for decades and, and they, and they raised their head again recently. They're, they're back on the table, right? I mean, they calm down for a while and they, and, and they get back. So, the education sciences are, it's, it's not physics, it's not chemistry, it's not biology, right? I mean, it, 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 and, and it, it's, it's hard work. I mean, it really is hard because humans are infinitely variable. I guess infinitely is, is, not, is not technically correct, but there's a lot of variation across humans. They're intentional, they're intentionals, which means like, I mean, I know how I am. If you ask me to do something, the more you ask me to do something, the less likely I'm ever to do it, right? So, so, I mean, humans are complex, but let's take, let's think about reading. So of all the things, of all the things that we could possibly research in education, we've spent more money and more rigor on identifying what works for reading than in anything else. And as a result, we actually know how to teach, right? And it, it's actually phonics, right? We know that phonics works. So why is it? Two things, right? After decades of research, the best science we have, you know, cognitive science, fMRIs, they know all this stuff. So why A, are reading scores so bad in, in the United States? And B, I guess I went from one to B, but forgive me on that. Um, the, the other, so the second point to be consistent is like, why do teachers still use whole language? And this goes to your point about how do we how do we implement how do we implement even the things that we know work and there's not a lot of them, but how how do we get how do we make sure that the things that we know work, how do we make sure that they're implemented? So we you know we have a a, a I'm, I'm going to put uh, you can't see my air quotes but we have a system air quotes of education that is one of the most complicated systems that you could possibly imagine, right? We have 110,000 schools, plus or minus. We have 14,000 school districts, plus or minus. We have 50 states in the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico and some outlying territory. And so the authority about education is scattered in this incredibly complicated system. And in education, you know, and I think rightfully so, is is, is a state issue, not a the federal role in education is relatively limited, right? So now we're talking about implementation in incredibly difficult circumstances, incredibly complicated circumstances. And and then we have, you know, three point, I think three point six million teachers. We have millions of teachers. And, you know, they're, most of them, not all, but most of them are hardworking professionals and they really care about their children. But, but in many of the things that they believe are not supported by the science. So how do we change? And, and again, these are, I, I taught for three years in a middle school in New York City. It was the hardest job I ever had. 
I spent over 30 years as a university faculty member, and every day in, in, as a university faculty member, I couldn't believe how easy the job was compared to those three years when I was dealing with middle school kids. I mean, it's just a, a so I have enormous respect for the difficulty of the job. But the fact of the matter is, like, how do we get teachers, how do we get teachers to, um, to know, to hear, to understand what the, what, what few things we know work actually work and then how do we get them to implement it in a system that is so decentralized Mm -hmm. it is i mean this is this to me is 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 an incredibly difficult challenge yeah i um because a student asked this question just just yesterday in class and you know dr kaminsky we're learning about spacing and retrieval practice and i'm telling them here's how you should study this is really effective here's the evidence they said well how come i'm learning about this for the first time right now and i said well let's let's think about this let's walk this back (laughs) um i when do you think you should have heard when do you think you should have heard about retrieval practice when you were in fifth grade how are we going to teach fifth graders this concept how would we reliably teach that what, how am I going to go in and tell a fifth grade teacher in, you know, a rural school that on top of everything else that they're doing, they need to also understand the cognitive science behind this principle um, and implement it in their classroom? Do you think like it's so we, we talked for a good 20 minutes about some systemic challenges to implementing best practices in the classroom and that uh, like you said, right, that teachers care about their students. They want to be doing the best thing, but the way the system is set up is that they have they have so much on their plates already, right? Um, we talk all the time about how you know I it took me almost a decade to get you know my different degrees and to get training and research methodology and all of this. Very few people will have gone through to get all of the training qualifications to become a researcher in this area and have all of the training qualifications to be a teacher and have the classroom experience, right? It's just, it it's, you really do have to have people working together on these problems. And to your point, it's, it's in a larger system, right? It's, it's so massive and decentralized and maybe you can get one school district in, one you know county and one state on board with a program but pushing that out you know a large-scale nationwide rollout of something gosh that's that's so complicated <laughs> no it's incredibly complicated so i'm not sure uh, so I'm, I'm just going to um, give an example of where i think we're going to end up so we just uh, we worked with nsf and we created an ai institute uh, for special education Okay, and the focal point of this, it's a $20 million project. The, um, the, the focal point are students with speech pathology. Okay, so, so, stu- so there, there are, um, millions of students that are having problem mastering speech, right? I mean, and, and the causes of this are many. And one thing we know is that there are not enough, uh, speech therapists in school. The, the, the number is, the, the number is, is, is minuscule compared to the need. And the other thing that's crazy is that they spend 60% of their time, we've done studies on this, 60% of their time, plus or minus, on paperwork rather than, rather than working with students, right? So, I mean, we built an incredibly, a system that is incredibly difficult to imagine how it could effectively deal with students that need a lot of hands-on attention, a lot of, you know, interaction, a lot of work for good diagnosis, assessment and, and, and for treatment. 
So the AI, this is an AI institute. There's a lot of parts to it, but the two parts that are the most easily accessible and the part that I'm most excited about are one, the, the challenges to build an AI assessment. So students can read, talk into, just like I'm talking to you, right? But the machine obviously is, you know, is, is watching patterns of speech, pronunciation, hesitations, all the kind of measures. You probably know them a lot better than I do, but you know, all these kinds of measures that are fundamental for uh, uh, measuring the, uh, the development of correct speech and, and identifying problems when students can't make the you know, full sentences or do words or whatever. So A, what we're trying to do is use AI to do um, assessments, right? And this is, again, for students with speech uh, problems, speech pathology. The second part is a diagnose, I'm sorry, a um, AI-assisted design of implement, an implementation of therapy. So I say, so the first, the, 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 the scorer, the, you know, the AI scorer says, hey, this student has these five problems in terms, and this is where we think this, the, the root cause of the, of the speech pathologies are. Here are the treatments that are, that are uh, maximally effective. And then the student is working with this, I'm going to call it AI tutor, you know, whatever this AI, assisted machinery is is designing interventions catching the you know where they're going right where they're going wrong and adjusting on the fly so the first part is is is, is some way brilliant right because it takes the burden off these overworked professionals that can't spend enough time doing the assessment but we know what the patterns are that are that are that students should have and this and the ones that the students do have and we could assess that pretty well right now. Then, of course, the hope is that once we have a, the, the diagnosis, the assessment correctly, then we will we'll have much better treatment options. And those treatment options could be machine-driven, or they could tell the teacher, hey, look, this student needs this help right now. You know, could you, this is where you should be spending your time with this student. So the third part, which is a smaller piece, but I think ultimately could be way more, uh, 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 could have a, not way more of an impact, but could have a huge impact. And that is, I'm, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. You know, these teachers spend 60% of their time doing paperwork. Well, guess what? Chat GPT. Why can't we, how do we harness that to do the paperwork? I was hoping, because you started talking about how much paperwork there is, and there is so much paperwork. I recently had to try to register my three-year-old with the school district, and I, it, it took... <laughs> It took me half an hour to fill out the paperwork to register him from school. And I kept thinking, like, I have a PhD and this is hard. And I like, and I don't understand these forms and there's so much work. And he sees a speech therapist. And so I've talked with his speech therapist about all the paperwork she has to do. And so I was, you were, I was like thinking the entire time, gosh, if, if we could just cut out the paperwork, is there some way where we can cut down where we don't have to fill the same, fill out the same field five different times because there's five different government agencies that need to look at this thing. And so you have to fill out five forms, right? It, it does seem like this would be a great opportunity to, like you said, to harness some sort of like AI assisted technology to just to just fill it all in. Yeah. So, so it should be, it, it should be easy. Right. And I mean, of course we, we, we don't know just yet how uh, chat GPT is going to affect everything, but it's going to affect everything. But, you know, I mean, so my vision is that, and, and we're going to put, you know, we're going to put resources behind this to like, how do we, 
harness chat GPT to take care of these kinds of repetitive issues. I mean, so, so the, the interesting problem is, I mean, you've seen this, uh, uh, your kids are younger, but, but, but you know, this happens, right? Report cards are now electronic. So what does that mean? You know, so the uh, question one on the report card, your, your daughter is uh, progressing blah, blah, blah in like language arts. And then there's a, a drop down menu and the teacher just clicks one of five options, mm-hmm. right? Your, 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 your daughter is, is behaving a drop down menu five clicks. So then, I mean, and you end up with a standard report card that's easier to do than the old fashioned way where the teacher wrote notes and et cetera. But that's not, that's not what, that's not what we need. And that's certainly not what we need for students with special needs that do need diagnoses and that need much more complicated EIPs, for example. But there has to be, I'm, I'm sorry, I believe there has to be a way in which we could take, you know, the, 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 the this incredible uh, chat GPT or something chat bot and, and harness it to free teachers up to do what they do, what they should be doing. That is to teach rather than spending 60% of their time filling out for It's insane. The last question I have for you, and you've kind of talked to this already, which is great, um, since I, I, I figured the conversation would go this way, where we've spent, you know, 20 minutes or so talking about all of these challenges and really big problems. And so I uh, wanted to ask you, how does IES facilitate research and the application of research? And you've already given a wonderful example here with um, speech pathology and looking into AI. I was wondering if you had any other examples of sort of solutions or, you know, things things that you're trying to facilitate right now. It's a, lo- it's a long list, but I, I'm, I'll tell you what we're trying to do going forward, right? Which um, I hate that term, but I just fell into it. Research, traditional education research has been too slow, quite frankly. So our normal grant will be about five years, often with a price tag of about $5 million. And I mean, I, I, I'm going to be perfectly honest that most of the things that we support don't work, right? Because again, we talked about this earlier, humans are, are incredibly complicated. And it's not, it's not only in the education sciences that we don't find things that work. I mean, just go through any human science, right? And most things don't work. You know, if you have a 10%, 15% hit rate, you're, 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 you're beating the odds. Yeah. So, so one of the things that, uh, so we're running an X prize. We're in the final stages of the X prize. Um, and we'll announce the winner in March. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, probably April. So what was the purpose of the X prize? It was to fail fast. So if most things don't work, why do we spend five years and five million dollars to learn something that didn't work? So how do we how do we fail fast? So and this is not going to be applicable for every topic and every problem in education, but there are many there are many um, issues in education where either you know within a semester we know whether or not something worked and how and how well students progressed, or we have um, you know approximate measures that you know that are pretty good indicators that. Two years from now, three years from now, um, a student will either be progressing or, or not progressing. So, so the X Prize was taking digital learning platforms. So they're, they're increasing numbers of these platforms that deliver lessons and tests. So, if you, and and, and uh, you had to have at least a hundred thousand students on the on your platform to be eligible to participate in the X Prize. So the the easy way, the easy concept was okay: deliver an experiment, deliver an experiment on your platform. Run it for three months, or but it can't be much longer than a semester. Take the lessons 
about what worked. So remember, there's 100,000 students, so we have all kinds of demographic groups and geographies and, you know, students with different abilities. So tell me what you learned from implementing your experiment and then replicate it. Replicate your experiment in different geographies, in different demographics, different student groups, and you have to replicate at least five times. So the whole purpose of this is to learn what works for whom under what conditions. So nothing works for every student, right? So we run, our, our traditional model was looking for main effects, and then, you know, then, oh, maybe as a, you know, a, 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 an afterthought, we would start, like, looking in the different subgroups. But often it wasn't, like, specified in advance what groups of students you were looking for, and you didn't design the experiment correctly, and you're just sort of clobbering, you know, uh, putting together a bunch of data that, that you know, of, of often questionable validity. But if we go, if, if the design here was to experiment quickly, fail fast, the few things that work, replicate those things in, in different student populations. And the whole goal is to keep pushing, 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 pushing until we find this, the groups of students, the kinds of students that an intervention is most likely to, to work with. So main effects are, I mean, main effects was like, I mean, that was 1950s medicine, right? And we, and, and when IS came along in 19, uh, 2002, that was the model that was available. But individualized medicine is the thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, and we need to figure out, we need to figure out how to move towards more, more individualized interventions. So this is why AI for me is like, is a potential game changer, right? I mean, we never, and we should never even think about, you know, eliminating teachers, God forbid, they're too important, but we need to figure out how to ease the burden on teachers so that they can individualize their instruction to either you know, the, the groups of students that, that have the same needs or the you know, individual students. So we have to free up a lot of their time to do what they do best. And this is why I'm hoping that you know, this example of, of speech pathology, speech and learning pathology, is just the opening wedge of what can happen. And it's all about, for me, it's all about individualized instruction, right? Getting, getting to the point where... We are delivering an ed- education that is responding to the needs of that child at that time, at that moment, right? And, and, and that to me is like, I think, I think, you know, we are maybe on the cusp of being able to do that. People have been trying in the past to do it. And, you know, there have been many, uh, many, probably too strong work, but there have been experiments, there have been education programs set up that are driving towards, towards that individualized learning experience. But the fact of the matter is the tools we have now are so much better. To, mm-hmm. to, to make that happen. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. That's really interesting that there's, uh, of course, I'm sure like like every institution, I've been getting all kinds of, there's been a lot of talk about chat GDP and about AI. Uh, but I really like this this viewpoint that this is, it's just another tool. It's just another tool that we can use. Um, and when we have really complicated problems like student learning, because as you said, humans are, if not infinitely complex, it certainly feels like it at a time. There's a high degree of of variation, and it's uh, you know it, it changes moment to moment. There's all of there's just so many factors. It's 
it's really, I think, a really good perspective to say, like, well, we have better tools now. Why don't we try to use those tools instead of trying to, you know, work against them? I, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. I know that um, I think we've probably gone a little bit longer than I said we would, but I was really interested in everything you had to say. So thank you again for for coming on and for for, for talking with me today. No, it was great. And uh, we should do it again. Yeah, I'd, I'd love that. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.